0: So I invited him to join me and my family and a whole bunch of family friends for our sort of raucous, inside jokey annual beach vacation. The route from New Boyfriend to Beach was about seven hours long, um, almost all along the shoreline, including a long stretch called the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, that is bridges and tunnels. And then a hurricane hit. Of course it did, right? Most grand gestures happen in the rain. (laughs) It took quite a bit longer than seven hours. But eventually, the new boyfriend pulled up to our rented beach house with seawater on his windshield. Grand gesture. And it worked. I mean, when he pulled in, I thought, okay, I guess he really likes me. Now, this is when we separate the optimist from the pessimist. Show of hands, who thinks that story is about my... Oh, not you, family, because you know this story. Who thinks this story is about my husband? Okay, so... (laughs) It it is, actually. This story is about my husband. Um, Plan A was to tell you two stories, that one and another story about something that an ex-boyfriend did. And then I was going to ask you to guess which one was about my husband, but here was the problem. There was no way that I could describe the two stories without making it really obvious. (laughs) The grand gesture works when it's a noteworthy manifestation of a general attitude, of the way things actually are. I smile thinking about Dave and the hurricane because it was an illustration of his excitement about spending time with me. And when he showed up at that beach house, he spent time with me. And he acted like I was a person worth braving a hurricane to see. The gesture is only as powerful as the attitude that motivates it. Now, my ex-boyfriend's grand gesture, objectively, was thoughtful and generous. But for months afterwards, he talked about it to everyone. (laughs) And they would gush to me, oh, what a great guy. And every time it came up, it mattered a little bit less. Because it felt less and less like he cared and more like he'd purchased an insurance policy. (laughs) He had officially, indisputably, checked the thoughtfulness and generosity requirements. After a while I started wondering, if I gave this grand gesture back, could I just have like general thoughtfulness? You know, day to day? Which leads us at last to our passage for today. This is Romans two twenty-five through 29, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those of you who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically, and yet obeys the law, will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, there are a lot of negatives in that, so we're going to do it one more time. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. If you break the law, you might as well have not been circumcised. And if you aren't circumcised, but you keep the law, it's like you are circumcised. Everyone got that? Okay. If ever there were a grand gesture, circumcision is it. It's painful, it's permanent, and it fits into that category of, I don't know why this matters to you, but it does, so I'm going to do it. But Paul says even a grand gesture like circumcision doesn't matter if you do it and then turn away from the commands of the covenant it's supposed to stand for. Apparently, at the time Paul was writing, there was this idea that circumcision could act as a kind of talisman. There was this saying, Um, the circumcised do not go into Gehenna, hell. So the mere act of circumcision kept you safe. And Paul is saying, no, the rules are the same for everyone. You still have to follow the law. Now, scholars seem to agree that the language Paul is using for observe the law um, means more fulfill the law, not just kind of try, but actually keep all requirements without fail. Remember our context here. Romans 1 starts with Paul talking about those bad Gentiles. And then in Romans 2, Paul turns to his fellow Jews and says, but us too, we are not in great shape either. So this passage isn't about sort of what amount of law keeping um, makes you count as circumcised. It's saying that the marks of faith are only as strong as the actual faith. If you're circumcised and you're right with God, great. Great. If you're circumcised and you're not right with God, circumcision won't help you. And if you're right with God but you're not circumcised, well, you're still right with God. Now, what Paul says to the Jews of his day about circumcision can be said to us about baptism. I'm going to do some really liberal paraphrasing here. So this is the Darcy faint version. Don't quote it. Baptism has value if you're right with God, but if you're not right with God, you have become as though you had not been baptized. So then, if those who are not baptized get right with God, will they not be regarded as though they were baptized? The one who is not baptized physically, and yet is right with God, will condemn you who, even though you have God's word in baptism, are not right with God. A person is not a Christian who is one only outwardly, nor is baptism merely outward and physical. No. A person is a Christian who is one inwardly, and baptism is baptism of the heart, by the spirit, not by the rule book. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So there are some Christian traditions in which baptism is a gateway. Maybe not to faith itself, but at least to church participation. Right? Step one, get baptized. Only after that can you become a member, take communion, teach Sunday school, do church stuff. There is a lot about that. Approach that makes sense. Baptism is important. When Jesus was on earth, he didn't give a lot of instructions about ritual, right? Like he didn't say, count down to my birthday with three purple candles and one pink candle. Um, He did a lot of his ministry informally. He taught wherever there was space. He healed people when they showed up. And he didn't have a lot of patience for excess ritual, right? His response to Pharisees' sort of methods of praying was cut the crack. Uh, He did not grant time off when his disciples wanted to go home for a funeral. But we read in John 3, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Baptism is something Jesus took time to do, and it's something he tells us to do. Right before Jesus' ascension, the Great Commission, he gives final orders to his disciples, Um, and this is Matthew 28 I'm reading. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Go and make disciples. How? By baptizing and teaching. Baptism isn't just sort of one option on the spiritual growth menu. Like, well, what do you want to do? You could... Sing some David Crowder songs, if that's your thing. Or you could do a prayer labyrinth, if that's more your speed. Or if you like water, try baptism. Right? Baptism is what Jesus did. And usually in the Gospels, baptism isn't something that stands alone. In John 4, the text says that Jesus was gaining and baptizing disciples. These two concepts sort of flow together. If you were gained as a disciple, then you got baptized. And Jesus speaks the same way in Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The implication is that those who heard Jesus' message and then walked away unbaptized were the ones who didn't really buy in. So it makes sense that in some churches, baptism is sort of the first thing that happens through the door. Now, in a lot of church traditions, parents baptize their children as infants. So your baptism really is your initial welcome into the family of God. And in those traditions, there's a process of confirmation where once you're old enough to understand, you sort of take that baptism on um, as your own. That's not what we do, so it's not what I'm going to be talking about a lot today, but I do want to be clear about the fact that we affirm the faith that is developed in those churches. Baptism is an act that the universal church all shares. When we start talking about methods of baptism, It's not an us and them conversation, it's a some of us and some others of us conversation. Now, as Zach and Kristen and Dave and Marge demonstrated today, here at New Hope, the ritual that initially welcomes children into the church is dedication. Baptism is something that we reserve for people who independently approach a church leader and request to be baptized. We don't have a lot of hard and fast rules about when in a person's life that needs to happen. And there are two reasons for that. The first is this. You should get baptized to mark your identity in Christ, not because of logistics. Baptism in the Greek baptizo was not strictly a religious term at the time of Christ. Um, It's one of those workhorses that gets used in a lot of different contexts, so it's hard to sort of narrow down one definition, but in general, it means the use of one substance often water, not always, to unalterably change the identity of another. The easiest way to picture this, and one of the ways that baptizo was used, was dyeing fabric. If you take a white robe and you baptize it with red dye, what you get is something that is never going to be a white robe again. This is the imagery of baptism. You do it to permanently mark yourself as belonging to Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I'm not what I was before. I'm something different. Get baptized when that's a statement you feel called to make publicly in response to God's work in your life. Don't get baptized because you want to play the guitar up front. Don't get baptized because you want a church wedding. Don't get baptized because you need new hope to say you're a member in good standing so you can go on a missions trip. The second reason is this. Baptism isn't magic. It marks a supernatural change in your identity. That's significant. But it doesn't create a supernatural change in your identity. You don't emerge from baptism with a new line of communication to God, or it doesn't melt calluses on your heart, it doesn't resolve inconsistencies in your head, and it doesn't stop you from sinning. It also doesn't save you. Jesus and his disciples baptized people when they became his followers. That was sort of the regular course. That's what they did. We don't see in the Gospels a dogmatic insistence that at every encounter with an individual, Jesus has to seal the deal with water or it's unfinished. So baptism, mechanically performed, standing alone, doesn't mean anything. That's not the same as saying that baptism is meaningless. Now, in churches like ours, where there's not some hard point where you have to get baptized or leave, we haven't always done a great job explaining that distinction. Remember what Paul is saying in this passage. The grand gesture has value if you are right with God. If you aren't right with God, it's though you didn't make the grand gesture at all. Grand gestures matter because they're noteworthy manifestations of the actual state of things. Okay. It's legal trivia time. Can anyone tell me what common law marriage is? Yes. yes uh, have it. Well, yes. That's why it's legal, <laughs> that's why it's legal trivia, not legal advice. Yes. Yes. Okay, you're smarter than I expected. Yes. So, <laughs> I used to think. <laughs> that common law marriage meant if you lived together like husband and wife for a certain period of time, the law counted you as married. You have to actually hold yourselves out as husband and wife. So you need to call each other husband and wife. And when people say, how long have you been married? You're supposed to answer with like a year. And it really helps if you had a wedding ceremony that just happened to be invalidated because, like, you weren't old enough or nobody signed the marriage certificate. See, if you just live together for a while, and when people ask you how long you've been married, you say something like, well, about 12 years we've been together, but, you know, we're committed, weddings are a hassle, and it's just a piece of paper. Then the law assumes that you intended to not get married. Sometimes, inertia speaks volumes. Because it's not just a piece of paper, is it? I mean, it is, in one sense, a piece of paper, but standing behind it is a set of promises that you've made publicly to take on each other's baggage, to share all your loot, and to live all tied up in each other. When 12 years pass and you go on vacation and you refinish your kitchen and you have a kid or two and you never get around to making those promises publicly, it begs the question, do you really want to be all tied up in each other? You don't seem to be taking it very seriously. We can ask the same question about baptism. If you just haven't gotten around to it, maybe it's time to pull that out and examine it. Is there some buried ambivalence there that's holding you back? It's not a good idea to just sort of busy yourself with church involvement for a decade or two if you haven't fully resolved that you're going to be living in God's kingdom. The grand gesture is a noteworthy manifestation of the actual state of things. We need noteworthy manifestations because we fall back into the grind and we forget. We have busy, distracted days where it is hard to remember why we care about the things we know we're supposed to care about. And it's good on those days to have tangible points of reference. I have a friend who really struggled when she got married with the idea of taking her husband's name. She loved her name. She loved the parents she shared that name with. And she and her fiancé had a fair bit of discussion about it, and they agreed that a name was just a name. It wasn't going to make or break their marriage. The important thing was that they could separate from their families of origin and build a new primary identity in this family they were creating together. But they also agreed that the reason my friend was hesitant was because it was not going to be easy for her to pull away from her family of origin and create a new identity in this family she was creating. So she changed her name. She needed that tangible reminder on her license in her email address that she'd changed primary allegiances. Tangible symbols are something that Israel did well. In the Old Testament, we see a lot of marking of testimony. You know, God will do something great or he'll make some new promise and the people build an altar So future generations will know. Old Testament stories sometimes end and then switch to instructions. Therefore, every year do this on this day and remember that it means this. We are not so great at this. We keep a lot buried in our own heads. You know, I sometimes will get a new insight into God's character, uh, his faithfulness, his power to transform me. And I will think, wow, wow. And then I will go home, and I will serve dinner, and I will load the dishwasher. I don't always feel like I have the vocabulary to explain what's happening, and so it just kind of stays unsaid. Rituals like baptism are rich in layers of symbolism and meaning and mystery because they need to stand in when words don't seem sufficient. And words aren't sufficient we don't usually end sermons at new hope with specific homework but to quote jason every once in a while it's specific application time uh, and that time is today so this year new hope will be celebrating baptism on august 26th please do not wait until august 19th to look at your calendar and see whether or not you can come If you aren't baptized yet, start thinking. Maybe it's time. And if you're not sure, you feel like you need more information to make a decision, we have a class for that, um, which will be happening in early summer. And you can talk to Jason if you want more information. If you already are baptized, which I realize is most people in this room, remember that God made this a public ritual. It's a big deal. It's the noteworthy manifestation of our understanding that our identity is in Christ. And it's not just any grand gesture. It's not like one we randomly picked. It's the one Jesus asked us to do. Support your friends in baptism for their sake and for yours. We need to witness it, take pictures, celebrate, and remember how lavishly blessed we are to have this life in Christ that we do. Amen? Amen. Amen.